Hi, thanks so much for tuning in to the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast, where I do a deep dive into the strategies and mindset behind launching, scaling, and leading a high-impact nonprofit. I'm your host, Brooke Ritchie Babbage, and I'm so excited you're here. You are listening to episode number five. In today's episode, I'm talking with Wayne Ho, the CEO of the Chinese American Planning Council, which is one of the largest Asian American social service agencies in the country. I was really excited to talk with Wayne for so many reasons. I wanted to talk with him about his leadership and advocacy spaces, his perspective on how both social services and working with government will need to change in the coming months and years, and on how it feels to have to think through leading such a large institution in such a destabilizing and uncertain time. We got to talk about all of that and our country's deep fissures around lines of race and class and how they've become even more urgent in the past year for social service organizations and advocates that are working in communities of color, if that's even possible. And we got to talk about the role and responsibility of government as a partner in shaping what equity will look like in actual communities and lives in the next normal. We also remembered early in our conversation that we were at the Kennedy School together close to 20 years ago, both focused on how to leverage policy to change systems in the lives of vulnerable communities. So we had a great time riffing and talking. This conversation is taken from my video series, The Next Normal, which explores issues of strategy, sustainable leadership, and racial equity in the nonprofit sector in the world that will follow the tectonic shifts in 2020. So let's get started. Hey, Wayne. Great to see you. Hey, how are you doing, Brooke? Good. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you today about the next normal and what leadership and nonprofits and mission-driven work and the world should look like in the coming months. So thank you. Yeah, no, uh, thanks for inviting me. I think this is something that I think everyone needs to start talking about is what the next normal looks like for the community and for us as nonprofits. Yeah. So I would love to actually just uh, kick off by going right to the heart of the question. Um, a lot of people, I started having these conversations as I was telling you before we started recording, um, because people keep talking about returning to normal. But when I talk with people like you and people who are doing mission-driven work, particularly here in the city where we live, everyone's like, the old normal wasn't good for the communities and people we care about. What are your thoughts about returning to normal and why next normal is maybe a better way to think about it? Maybe it's because the presidential election is in my head right now. But, you know, the, the famous question that they always ask during debates is, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And I feel like in many ways, that's a legitimate question for us in the communities we serve, my staff that we employ, our family members, which is, were we better off before the pandemic? started. And then if we weren't, and that's not the normal we want to go back to, then this is an opportunity for us to do something different. So in no particular order, but you know, immigrants in the country right now were, especially undocumented immigrants, weren't getting a fair share. We still were not getting comprehensive immigration reform, public services they weren't eligible for. Uh, In the Asian American community, there continue to be a lot of divisions with other black and brown communities, which obviously becomes even more important right now to just the Asian American community being so misunderstood and many people thinking that they're successful. So Nonprofits that serve them don't get a fair share of philanthropic dollars or government dollars. Um, And obviously, right now, I think 
the pandemic showed that there's a lot of inequities and issues in our communities. And we don't want to go back to normal. We want to go to something better. That's right. What is better look like? Well, that's the hard question. Can the city, state, and federal government find the resource? Well, the federal government can always find the resources. The question is whether it's going to come to the state and the city and how they allocate those resources. One that's obviously top of mind right now is really around people who are struggling with poverty. And I think that in the simplest core, human services nonprofits are trying to lift up all communities who are some way marginalized, oppressed, or not part of the socioeconomic system or not succeeding educationally or in other institutions. So what can we do as human services right now to make sure it's not just about offering childcare or getting people some entry-level jobs that are minimum wage through our job training programs or doing some legal services for immigrants so they're not getting evicted? But what can we do to really move people towards thriving? So our job training program, giving people living wage jobs where they're moving up the ladder and they're becoming the bosses and the entrepreneurs. What can we do to make sure that it's not just working with opportunity youth, but we are really trying to make sure that all young people that we're serving do go to college and get a great career and come back and serve their communities. And I can go through endless examples, uh, but I think for human services, we really need to take a hard mirror to ourselves and realize that it's not just about serving people, but it's really about changing their conditions so they can thrive. The other one that's really, I think, reflective is really around everything that's come out since the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, which is around Black Lives Matters. And I think racial equity should be top of mind right now for nonprofit institutions. And I know that you have some more questions around what racial equity looks like in the next normal. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, I've heard this time described really beautifully as a phoenix moment for our country. And I've been a New Yorker for more than half my life and have always done nonprofit work here in the city. And it feels very much like a Phoenix moment. And what I hear you describing is this opportunity, so much of how we have worked with black and brown communities, with communities that live in poverty, with immigrant communities, is rightly being sort of burned to the ground, right? Mm -hmm. Money's going away. Community organizations are really struggling to provide even basic services. And it's an opportunity to say, how do we rise stronger? And better. And it isn't just about piecemeal legal services and making sure that you get five meals and a job, any job. It's an opportunity to rebuild in a way that's more intentional and more comprehensive. This issue of racial equity, I think that racial equity is something that should have been top of mind always. <laughs> right? I mean, it's a little, you know, we were talking before about anger. And it angers me a little that it took yet more murders and a pandemic to make racial equity seem to be top of mind for more people. I guess my first question for you is, do you think it actually is becoming more important to the powers that be and to people that run powerful institutions? Or is there a way in which our conversations are more performative than anything else? Um, I with the caveat that I have many friends that are in elected office or work for elected officials, I'm not one who's telepathic and able to figure out everyone's intent or whether elected officials really believe in racial change and racial justice and dealing with anti-racism and diversity, equity, inclusion, whatever term we want to use today. But what I do want to say is that the fact that we have 
council members, the fact that we have state officials, the fact that we have a mayor and a governor and other citywide and statewide officials to folks running for president and willing to talk about these issues. I think that is a game changer. I remember, what was it, four or five years ago now, which seems like a lifetime ago with Colin Kaepernick and kneeling down that no elected official will touch it. We had so many people in the corporate sector shun away from it. And I always recall, I'm a San Francisco 49ers fan. I'm from the Bay Area. And I remember when I was doing the hashtag of stand with cap and I stopped watching NFL specifically because of what happened with Colin Kaepernick. And that's the only sport I follow. Right. It's very hard. And there's obviously other issues, with the, there's other issues with the NFL about how they deal with sexual harassment, sexual assault, and other issues, or the owners and what happens there. But I think this is to say that I would have never imagined that a few years later, you have the NFL, the No Fun League, with the commissioner Roger Goodell saying that we were wrong with how we treated Kaepernick. Or even it's performative and they know their market and they did some surveys. But the fact that we have Amazon or Hulu or Netflix when I'm logging in and they say Black Lives Matter, the fact that it's in many ways, we're normalizing this concept of Black Lives Matters, which to me, it should never have been politicized to begin with. Like, why are we politicizing that a life matters, especially a Black life mattering? So I do think that there's at least a change in the conversation. The real question then is, what types of policies and practices, what types of programs, what types of changes do really need to happen at all institutions? So government, business, nonprofits ourselves, like what type of change can we do during this really hard time where we're trying to promote racial justice while at the same time dealing with a pandemic, which is day-to-day life and death for many individuals? I mean, I think that's exactly the right question. What are we being called to do differently? What does racial equity look like in practice now that is perhaps even different than it may have looked, you know, a year ago? I know you work in so many communities in the city. What do you think it should look like? I think it has to start with leaders being willing to have tough conversations. And the conversations cannot be on social media. Whether it's because of conversation, like <laughs> whether it's the, <laughs> the number of characters you can do on Twitter or people try to do clickbait or cancel yeah. culture, it's yeah. hard to have a real conversation where we do want a world where people can learn and ask questions. And it doesn't mean a person of color has to be the one doing all the teaching, but we do need a world where people can find it upon themselves to learn, make mistakes, make amends. And it's okay as we're trying to move towards the next normal and a better normal. But for the nonprofit sector, it comes down to leaders. So whether that's executive directors, our boards, senior management, educating ourselves and willing to make the changes. And I think there's many of us who work with immigrant communities, communities of color or other marginalized communities, always been willing to make those changes and learn. But the question is, were we doing it fast enough? And I think that's the question I've been asking myself and my team, which is, have we been doing it fast enough? Have we been allocating the resources to make it happen? Have we been educating our staff and our community members so we can make these changes? Are we having those tough conversations with our allies and partner organizations? And I think those are really hard conversations to have. 
And also, are we then holding elected officials and business leaders and neighborhood leaders and other civic leaders accountable to racial justice? And these are really hard conversations, but I do think it all starts with education, it starts with learning, and it starts with having safe spaces and brave spaces to have these tough conversations. I mean, I love that you talk about brave spaces, because I think one attribute of the next normal that I hear you highlighting is this willingness to be vulnerable right? The willingness to ask the question that perhaps isn't going to come out exactly the right way, but needs to be asked to move the conversation forward. And I think the other side of that question is being the person who's being asked and sort of being gracious in responding. I don't see how we move forward around issues of racial equity or equity more generally if we can't be honest and Mm -hmm. Right. If we can't ask questions and get it wrong and fail and have the person assume best intentions. And I think that's true with the accountability issue, too. Right. This idea of sort of holding leaders, philanthropic leaders, government leaders accountable. Often the word accountability is used as a weapon. Right. Mm -hmm. But I don't hear you using it that way. I hear you talking about accountability as part of a conversation. I know you do a lot of work with government. What do you think accountability looks like in the next normal, in a healthier relationship between sort of nonprofits and government and philanthropy? So I think accountability does not mean that we stop doing the good things or the positive things. Accountability is stopping the bad things that are going on. So if there's good policing and good police tactics, and this is not to get into whether or not police as an institution should exist. (laughs) Practically right now, we do have the NYPD, which is the largest police force in the country. So there's a reality there. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, if there's good police tactics, whether it's community policing, where it's building those ties, whether it's them, the NYPD officers who come out and do a lot of volunteer work at my senior centers or my child care centers or after school programs, accountability does not mean stop doing that. Accountability is about don't over-police certain communities of color, or at worst, don't kill more black individuals for not doing anything at all. So... I think that we need to really ask ourselves these really hard questions around how can we have police accountability during these times. So that's where I I think it's a really hard dynamic. So here's one example. As COVID started out in January and we started hearing more and more about this flu, we had the president call it the China virus or the Kung flu And we started seeing an uptick in anti-Asian harassment and bias. And we also had violence and what we would term hate crimes. Many of us in the Asian American community did get together with the mayor's office and the different offices around hate crimes. And it was a really tough conversation because we had to tell decision makers that you need to do something more to stop anti-Asian violence and hate crimes. But at the same time, we didn't want to expand incarceration of individuals who were the perpetrators. We wanted to see restorative justice. We wanted to see larger safety issues. And that's where it gets really hard when a couple weeks ago, there's an announcement that the NYPD has started an Asian hate crimes task force. There were many leaders in the Asian American community who said it took them long enough. 
give them the money to do it, hire more people, make sure it's not just Chinese, that we need to make sure that South Asians and Filipinos and Vietnamese and Koreans are represented. We'll recruit more officers in the next class who are Asian so they can be part of this hate crimes task force. And then there was a whole other segment of Asian American community leaders and activists who came out and denounced the Asian hate crimes unit. And they said this is an expansion of NYPD authority, that this is more uh, carceral, that we don't want to perpetuate incarceration and over-policing of certain communities, and that this is a pattern of NYPD collaborating with ICE or monitoring Muslim and Arab communities and South Asian communities post 9-11, that more practices that are going to hurt our communities and other communities of color and lead to divisions between Asian Americans and black and brown communities. And I think these are the types of conversations that we need to have, which is what does equity and justice look like for not just the Asian community, but other communities of color? That's right. The devils are in the details, right? I mean, I think the first thing that you said that's just great is as a nonprofit leader, accountability in the next normal means saying to people who are in positions of influence and power, you need to do more, right? But then how we define more matters. And I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this task force example is this question of who's at the table, right? Who's on the task force? who's shaping the goals and objectives of the task force, how we define more seems really important to me in the next normal. Mm -hmm. That it can't just be more of the same. Um, That there's more restorative justice and restorative practice work. One of the things that's always been really exciting to me about these conversations about what the next normal looks like is this question of who should be at the table for which decisions. And I'm interested in your thoughts about that. I mean, how do we create processes for defining what more looks like, what accountability looks like, what racial equity looks like? How do we create systems that are bringing in the right voices? And I know you and I have been doing this work for a long time. Like, there are working groups and their task force and their coalitions, and often they are great and very powerful and high impact. Sometimes, but... <laughs> Sometimes, okay. They can be. And so I don't want to say the work that social justice leaders have been doing for decades and generations hasn't worked, but I do think there's an opportunity to rethink and think more expansively. What are your thoughts about that? I would answer in two ways. I think first is, and I'm interested in digging deeper into this too, which is what can we do within our nonprofits ourselves? And I remember graduating from college and my whole career has been in nonprofits where I was thinking corporations are evil and capitalism and they're the ones perpetuating inequities and that government, uh, they're the ones too that are always behind the eight ball and they're late to things and they're not innovating and they uphold and a lot of the laws, especially at the national level, uphold inequities on purpose. So nonprofit's the one that I'm going to go to and that's where it's Pollyanna and Utopia. We're all going to get along. It's along. That's right. <laughs> Everyone's going to get along. We're always going to do the right thing. And that's not true. I think it's complicated. I've learned there's good people in all sectors. Yeah. There's bad players in all sectors. Mm-hmm. And I do think it comes down to us individually. It doesn't matter what position you're in, whether you're the frontline staff worker or you're the executive director of a nonprofit. Are you willing to learn? Are you willing to change? Are you willing to identify an issue and not just criticize. I think it's easy to be critical, but can you come to the table with a real recommendation about what changes should take place and why those changes would be better 
not just for our employees, but also better for the communities? That's the hard question. So with that, I think that when we look at decision makers and how we need to engage differently, I think it's a really interesting conversation about like, what do we need to do as activists or community leaders or others coming to the table and working across lines? I get it. If President Trump invited me to the White House to talk about Asian American needs during COVID, I 99.9% would not go. I'm pretty (laughs) sure I would not go. Yeah. But if there were other presidents, George W. Bush, whose policies I don't agree with, and even regardless of parties, there's policies the governors do that I think are detrimental to communities of color and immigrants. There's policies the mayor has done that are detrimental to communities of color and immigrant communities. But I would be willing to engage with them because, and maybe it's because I know there's just people in their offices as well as in different city agencies and state agencies who do want to do better. And it's not just what the executive wants. So... I would encourage any activist who does get invited to the table that they do need to come to the table, that your protest can be at the table. Your protest doesn't have to be away from the table. Mm -hmm. On the other side, though, and I think we saw that with the mayor's office, I think there's unfortunately, this administration does not know how to bring diverse voices to the table. They can appoint people to many task forces and advisory councils. They can bring us in for many meetings and we can have endless meetings on a topic where we're giving out good ideas, but very seldom is the information transparent, is the information timely, is the information in two ways. And maybe I'm appointed on the worst, maybe I'm not on the the right ones, but it seems like the low hanging fruit is what we get agreed to by decision makers. But the big issues never get taken care of or they're put to the side. It's just not implemented. And I was on the school diversity group that came out with two reports around promoting school integration. And our first report had low-hanging fruit, and many of those were implemented. Our second report had larger conversations about enrollment in specialized high schools and gifted and talented and how to look at different enrollment numbers and screens. And unfortunately, while ideologically there was agreement with the administration and the chancellor, nothing has been implemented. And this report came out years before covid So I think that's really what has to happen under this administration. And, you know, the governor doesn't even have task forces or ways of communicating (laughs) with him other than us having to protest in front of his office on Third Avenue or trying to get into the press. And that's the only time they react to us. I mean, I think you raise a number of things that go to the heart of how we move things forward, right? It isn't enough to have a coalition or a task force. There has to be real transparency. There has to be actual communication, which is two ways. It's not a statement followed by you know, a responsive statement. That's not communication. That's not a conversation. There need to be people at a table where actual decisions are being made, not just conversations. You know, I do a lot of work with networks, which are really interesting to me as sort of a way of bringing about social change. And one of the things that I appreciate about the model is inherent in working as a network is the idea that you have to agree on a common purpose and that part of the work of the network is clarifying that purpose. And I think what can happen sometimes with coalitions and task forces is that somebody somewhere that isn't at that table has identified a goal, right? Or at the very least, a set of priorities about how money is going to be allocated and resources are going to be allocated. And there isn't necessarily common understanding or agreement about those priorities. And so there are a lot of people having really great, important conversations over here 
when the priorities have already been set over here. And that's something that I think needs to change in the next normal, that if you're going to pull people together, if they're going to be different people at the table, it actually has to be meaningful decision-making happening at that table by those people. And that takes a relinquishment of power. Mm-hmm. So I guess my last question for you is about this issue of power. My personal view is that in order for the next normal to actually center equity and to look different for black and brown people, for immigrant communities, for people living in poverty, to begin to heal some of these fissures that we know have always existed, but that now more people can see, there have to be shifts in power. And people get really weird when you say the word power. I don't necessarily mean power over. I also mean power with. But this idea of sort of who is making decisions who is allocating resources, who's setting priorities, people who have for centuries been the ones making decisions and allocating resources have to let go. Does that resonate with you or do you think I'm too cynical? <laughs> do you think that? No, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, all change comes down to not just a redistribution of resources or a redistribution of wealth, but a lot of that, as we know, is a redistribution of power. And it's true. So I serve on a few nonprofit boards. And I think every institution right now is under the gun being analyzed on to what extent are they really promoting anti-racism? To what extent are any structures of inequity or inequality are being dismantled? How fast are you doing it? And especially for nonprofits, like that's everything from what's your salary scale to exactly this issue, which is how do you get... What's joint decision-making and participatory decision-making to where are you taking funding from? Should you be taking money from corporations? Are you taking money from foundations? Are you taking government money? And I think all these questions we have to wrestle with. So two of the boards I'm on, I think since everyone right now is being examined, including my own right now, is that there was one board I'm on where a lot of questions came up around these issues around anti-racism and white supremacy and what's happening in our programming And when we had a task force brought together of program participants and board members and staff members, there's a lot of open, honest conversations. And I can't speak for the program participants or the staff, but for those of us who were board members, we tried our best to leave titles at the door, to have open conversations, recognizing that when we do put things on the table, it might carry a little more weight, but how do we really bring out comments from everybody? But I think the key was everybody came to the table, to your point, with a clear purpose, clear ideas, and wanting to come up with ideas on how to improve the organization and the work that we did, and then make things better for the staff and for the community. There was another nonprofit board I'm on where, by the way, why am I always on these commissions? <laughs> I have to deal with these issues when I have my own organization and family. <laughs> so I would say the difference was that it was the program participants who brought it up to us and the board and the staff weren't necessarily ready to give up power. And while we created a structure where, again, we had a task force of board members, staff members, and participants, it became hard because many of us on the staff and board, looking back, were probably a little more defensive and not giving up power. And while we were doing the work and wanted to hear more, I could see how we weren't letting it go. But on the other side, the program participants who came to the table, they were not prepared. They didn't have specifics, they didn't have recommendations, or if they had recommendations, it, 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 to me, it felt really tone deaf where they said, well, we need to do it this way. And that would have been a $1 million cost to a $4 million organization, which was looking at budget cuts yeah. under COVID. 
So when things like that happen, I think that's where, just to say, every institution right now is under the gun, under the microscope, and we do need to lean into it. We need to embrace it as hard as it is. And even for us in my organization right now, we've been doing work over the last three years on being anti-racist and diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I think we are better off than others right now. But it doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that there weren't blind spots. And I think that's where we're leaning into it. And we do know we need to accelerate it as hard as it is and exhausting as it is right now when we're still dealing with a pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great note to end on that what we're talking about is hard. It's hard work. It can be exhausting, but that's how we get to a better next normal, right? We keep leaning in. And it's awesome to hear you give the example of your organization and even a willingness to say, we've been working at it, we're better, and we're not perfect. And that brings us circle to, you know, one of your original points. If we're going to make things better, people have to be willing to say that we're leaning in, we're doing the work, we're getting better, but we're not perfect. And that has to be okay. Yeah. And I think in the simplest form is that if we want to see change at any institutions in the city, in the state, I think everyone, if the pandemic has taught us anything, everyone is tied together from how you get your food and groceries to the landlords, to the homeowners, to the renters, our well-being, health-wise, economically, it's all tied together right now. And, And because of that, we need solutions that look at everyone. It can't just be let's only focus on the rich or let's only focus on the poor. Let's only focus on this community. Like, if anything has taught us is that we need to make sure that there's a strategy that's targeted for black communities, undocumented immigrants, homeowners, underemployed individuals, landlords, like we all need a strategy because we're all tied together, but it has to be an equitable strategy. Not everyone needs the same thing. And that's where we can have brave spaces for conversations, but I think we need brave spaces for decisions to promote this change in New York City. I love that. Well, thank you so much for a great conversation, Wayne. It's always so nice talking to you. (laughs) No, it's good talking to you too. Thank you very much for the invitation, Brooke. Have a great day. All right, you too. Thank you so much for joining me this week for this episode of the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts and definitely share with your friends. You can learn more about Wayne and the Chinese American Planning Council at www.cpc nyc.org and check out the next normal video series where you can watch us talking on camera at richiebabbage.com backslash next normal that's all for now have a great week and i'll see you back here next week for more mastermind <laughs>